Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor of Investors Chronicle and Peter Walls, Manager of Unicorn Master Trust. Today's issue of Investors Chronicle is our annual Investment Trust Special, which aims to offer some extra insight into this type of fund and how they could play a role in certain types of portfolios. Investment trusts are less well-known and more complicated type of fund, but if used correctly, could enhance your portfolio's returns and provide access to assets that you couldn't otherwise get exposure to. Peter, you run a fund which invests in investment trusts. I mean, why investment trusts, first of all, rather than investing directly in equities or bonds? Well, first of all, uh, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that I would be any good at direct investment. Investment trusts are all I know, really. Um, Master Trust is effectively a global growth fund, uh, and global markets have so many moving parts um, that my small team couldn't possibly cover in detail sectors such as biotechnology, mineral extraction, fintech, uh, the fangs in America and the bats in Asia, uh, currencies and all of those other moving parts um, in any great detail, not to mention political machinations. So I really see Master Trust as uh, as a fund um, for those that are looking for a global exposure, who recognise the advantages of the investment trust structure, um, but perhaps are deterred by some of their perceived complexities. You're obviously running a fund of funds, but why have you gone for investment trusts rather than open-ended funds? Because they are, after all, a lot more open-ended funds on offer than not. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've got nothing necessarily against open-ended funds and, you know, I do have the flexibility to use them uh, if if I choose to do so. Uh, I don't currently. I, th- I think the answer to your question uh, primarily is is performance. Um, so a number of research papers over the years have demonstrated that investment trusts on average outperform against comparable uh, open-ended funds over the long term. Not only do they outperform against their competitors in the open-ended world, but they can demonstrate outperformance against their benchmark indices as well. Um, And in many cases, that's after costs. Um, So performance is obviously key to to, to the attraction uh, from my point of view. Okay. Now, investment trusts have a different structure to open-ended funds and some added flexibilities, Um, for example, the ability to take on debt, known as gearing. The problem is of this is where you get extra flexibility and extra bells and whistles, usually, uh, you also get extra risks. So what would you say are the extra risks or let's say certainly risks that people should be aware of with investment trusts? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the permanent capital structure, having a fixed number of shares, allows the managers of investment trusts to take a long-term view without needing to manage inflows and outflows on a daily basis. So they're pretty unlikely to be uh, at any stage forced sellers in terms of market stress. And the investment trust structure gives them great flexibility in that they can uh, employ short or long-term gearing. Uh, They can issue additional securities, build up revenue reserves uh, for a rainy day. 
Uh, lots and lots of uh, structural advantages, the ability to distribute uh, realised capital gains by way of dividend, to buy back their own shares for cancellation and enhanced returns. And now, as you as you so rightly point out, that, that those advantages, you know, have another side. So, you know, gearing clearly is a double de- double edged sword, which can enhance returns in 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 rising markets can be increasingly damaging when markets uh, fall, particularly in stress market conditions. And then with investment trusts as well, there's the question of the discount and the premium or what some people refer to as discount volatility. Um, There are a lot of investors out there, and it's almost like a, a behavioral natural tendency. A lot of investors who are attracted to buying things that have already gone up and become more inclined to sell things uh, the further they fall and the quicker they fall. So in the investment trust world, this means that uh, recent performance can have quite a profound impact on the rating of the shares. Uh, so uh, a period of strong performance at the net asset value level uh, typically leads to a narrowing of discounts and possibly the building of a premium on the rating. Uh, and conversely, in falling markets when the net asset value is performing poorly, any premium that might have been in existence disappears and a discount builds. So it really is exaggerating the moves in the underlying assets of the investment trust. You know, and that can make quite a big difference to your returns over the short term. Okay. Um, so how do you try and mitigate investment trust risks when you're putting together a unicorn mass trust portfolio? Well, I'm I'm a bit of a meanie, really. I, I do like a discount uh, on anything that I buy. So I'm not really inclined to buy investment trusts at a premium. Never say never. Um, but, you know... <sighs> If if one of my holdings does move to a significant premium, it is one of those indicators I'll look at um, to try and find a way of recycling that capital into uh, into other areas. Um, in the expectations, really, of that uh, premium rated trust, either issuing additional equity uh, or perhaps even a cyclical downturn in the performance of their chosen area of specialization. So. I mean, gearing isn't such a such an important factor um, as it was in the past. I think you know risk aversion and people's um, you know concerns about high levels of gearing in the past have meant that you know, gearing across the sector on average today is in single digits, and very few investment trusts have gearing of more uh, than twenty percent. Um, uh, when I look at my portfolio, um, you know, I have to say that markets have been quite challenging in recent years, particularly in the UK since the referendum. Um, and my portfolio is quite well diversified. So my largest holding is only just over 3% in, in terms of uh, its its per, uh, percentage of the portfolio. Um, so I've got good diversification, I think, across the whole of the, the, of the fund. Okay. Now, you, as you mentioned, um, Unicorn Master Trust has a growth objective. So when you're selecting investment trust holdings for this growth objective, I mean, what main attributes do you assess? You know, what do you like to see in a trust? Well, I mean, I think it's sort of phrasing it as, 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 as purely growth is, is probably a bit misleading. You know, I do like dividends. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not going out of my way to to um, to, to to generate a, a meaningful dividend for this fund, but the, the whole discipline of a good dividend policy 
even if it's from a low level, um, I think is very helpful. Um, in an ideal world, it would be great to be able to tick all of the boxes for every investment trust that, that you look at. You know, you want a, a benchmark beating management team uh, with a record that's you know, maybe over one one or more cycles in the past, but then you've got to have those individuals and think they're going to be around there for the next two cycles. You know, probably that's easier said than done. Um, you know, I don't want to see any evidence of, of style drift in, in terms of, of, of the management team uh, and the way they go about their investment policy. I'd like to see good succession planning for the team um, and good use of the investment company structure. So investing for the longer term in specialist investments, um, the use of gearing where appropriate and a, you know, supportive shareholder register, a supportive board of directors and a realistic approach to discount management are all things that I like to see. Does analysing these attributes always work? Um, and if not, what would be an example of a holding that didn't work out? <laughs> Um, if only. Uh, I mean, you always have to sort of expect the unexpected in in, in, in investment. Um, you know, for example, I like the attribute of, of what people refer to as skin in the game, where the managers and the directors um, have their own money invested. Um, but that's no guarantee of success. And, you know, there are situations where significant skin in the game has been rewarded by a consistent underperformance so you know again none of these none of these um attributes necessarily mean that you're going to 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 meet with success um i mean i suppose the good thing about investment companies and the the sector overall is you know when when you compare it to to the open-ended world is that the problem children of the investment trust world tend to be dealt with um, through a process of what is referred to as financial Darwinism. Um, you know, poor performance typically leads uh, to an ever-widening discount. Uh, this may or may not attract a, a, a activist investors who will push against what probably is a, 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 an open door um, for a resolution. Um, and independent boards of directors are clearly duty-bound to act in the interests of the company and its shareholders. Um, so, you know, returns of capital, changes of manager, changes of management group are regular features of the investment trust sector. Now, uh, I mean, you know, one always makes mistakes in investment. And although I didn't um, buy the Woodford Patient Capital Trust at launch uh, back in 2015, um, I, I'm somewhat somewhat reluctant to buy investment trust new issues as, as a general rule anyway. Um, but more recently, following its problems, I started to build a, a position in that trust. Um, it's not working for me at the moment. Um, so I'm showing a, a, a book loss on that investment. Um, but it is a demonstration of the fact that investors in that fund uh, can trade in and out of the shares, uh, albeit at a very, very wide discount presently. Uh, we have seen a change of management that's taken place. Um, so the new managers uh, will be doing the rounds in the coming weeks and uh, we'll be looking at the portfolio and trying to explain to investors and shareholders how they're going to take uh, that situation forward. Um, when I bought, started to buy into this position, I'd taken on board the fact that some of the underlying portfolio investments uh, were probably of negligible value. So in my mind, I'd written those off. Um, and it appealed to my 
contrarian tendencies to try and look at things where no one else is interested in buying. Now, time will tell whether that proves to be the right decision or not. Um, but I'm certainly encouraged by the fact that the board there have uh, decided to continue with the policy over the medium to long term to try and work through and see if any value can be achieved from this underlying portfolio. Okay, and how um, long are you typically prepared to wait for a holding to come good? Well, I or improve. I'm, I, I'm not. I'm not yeah. really trying to buy mm. things that have gone wrong mm. um, mm. in the first place. I mean, yeah. whenever I'm looking to recycle capital, um, I'm looking uh, at situations where I believe there's a catalyst for an improvement in the outlook. And that might be because the investment policy has been revised or the manager's been changed um, and the uh, scope for recovery is encouraging. Um, you know, I'm, I think you've got to be a patient investor mm-hmm. um, in everything that you do, regardless of whether you're investing directly uh, or through uh, investment companies. Um, and, you know, I do have the um, ability and uh, the privilege of being able to enter into dialogue with the managers and with the boards of directors who, you know, are quite open to shareholder communications um, to try and work through situations that prove, prove to be problematic. You said you obviously don't try and buy things with a problem outset. So when you're selecting investment trust, you know, what don't you like to see before you put your money in? Is there anything that would make you categorically rule out investing in an investment trust? Um, I mean, personally, um, you know, I tend to avoid um, single country funds in emerging markets. It's it's not that I don't believe that there are good managers in of Indian trusts or Vietnamese trusts um, uh, or, or that attractive returns can't be made from those markets. But I prefer to invest in more regionally diversified trusts in emerging markets, which have greater flexibility. I also referred earlier to, to investment trust new issues. I'm, I'm not really the broker's greatest friend when it comes to new issues. So I think over 18 years, I've probably participated in just five or six mm-hmm. Um, equity-based new issues. And in some cases, um, you know, they've proved to be successful. And in others, they've proved to be shorter term in nature. Um, but again, it goes back to that earlier point about buying at a premium and typically you're always paying expenses uh, of a new issue. And quite often you find that a new issue can only come to the market because the underlying asset class has performed well in the previous year or three. Okay. Now, the uh, recent problems uh, with LF Woodford Equity Income Fund have highlighted an issue many investors had previously not thought about, liquidity, the ease with which you can buy and sell a security. How important a consideration is liquidity in terms of investment trusts you um, put unicorn mass trust assets into? It's, it, it's important, clearly. Um, and uh again i'd go back to the point about having a, a diversified portfolio of investment trusts and you know my fund is not a mega fund it's uh, just shy of 100 million in assets so um i i don't tend to trouble the market in terms of liquidity 
in normal market conditions. Um, but by the same token, um, I have a structural bias in my portfolio uh, towards less liquid underlying portfolios. So I have uh, structural overweighting towards smaller companies' funds or investment trusts, both in the UK and overseas, uh, and also towards listed private equity funds. And, you know, I... I you say that investors are, 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 are being awakened to this liquidity issue. You know, I do remember uh, back in 1987 with Black Monday and the, the crash of 87, um, where basically it was almost impossible uh, on certain days to, to, to sell your open-ended funds because the dealers, which was the only way you could do it, mm-hmm. pick up the phone and speak to a dealer, um, put their feet up on the desk and didn't pick up the phone. So, you know... <laughs> The problem with this this whole subject of liquidity is that if everyone wants to rush for the door at the same time, the door can very quickly turn into a cat flap. And um, the the situation with Woodford, um, you know, is quite extreme. Uh, I've never really understood the rationale for having unlisted illiquid investments in an open-ended fund. Um, I... I take some comfort from the fact that few open-ended funds do have that exposure. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean to say that liquidity in listed companies, be they smaller companies or companies listed on the alternative investment market, can't at times just just, just seize up in terms uh, of liquidity. So I I take some comfort in the fact that, uh, you know, I not only have a diversified portfolio, but I also have a diversified uh, uh, number of investors in my fund. And I, I think what what the big question here is is for investors to, uh, you know, can they do they have the ability and the information at their fingertips to be able to assess not only the liquidity of an underlying portfolio such as the Woodford Equity Income Fund in terms of daily dealing volumes in each of those. Investments and the fact that you've got some unquoted investments that you can't deal in, but also to understand the owners of that open-ended fund, because part of the problem was the fact that you had very big owners wanting to sell at the same time. So you need to understand, looking forwards, who owns that particular open-ended fund, what other assets the manager is managing within that particular area of expertise so do they have pension funds and large overseas clients um uh, you know where the liquidity and movements uh, in in the ownership of those assets can have an impact on the pricing of the open-ended fund so you have to know who owns it how much money is being run in that area uh, and those are the, the the questions that the regulator needs to look at mm. to be able to come to some sort of conclusion about how you go about putting wealth warnings on liquidity. What about your policy with investment trusts? Would you look at some of those same things with investment trusts? Are you, um... What we've seen in the investment trust world is the consolidation of wealth managers, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, they've become so big that they really can't uh, mm. afford to be looking at investment trusts with market values for some of them less than 200 million. Uh, and that really, you know, uh, throws up a, a whole range of investment trusts that are below that size, um, where liquidity is probably not as good as it could be. Mm. Um, 
but my fear is that it sort of chokes off the lifeblood of, of the sector in terms of bringing new products to the market. Um, and um, over time, I would expect the number of sub 100 million, sub 200 million funds um, to, 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 to diminish further. Uh, we're seeing changes of management in a couple of them at the moment. Um, we're seeing shareholder pressure mounting on a couple of others. So I think that direction of travel is 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 going to continue. Um, it's a bit of a shame, really, because you know sometimes you need a small fund to be able to take advantage of uh, you know some attractive investments in illiquid markets. I mean, River and Mercantile have a smaller companies fund where uh, as soon as it gets above a hundred million, they'll give the access back to shareholders. So they're saying we don't want you to manage your mm-hmm. money because we can't manage it effectively um, above a certain level. So we'll give it back to you. Well, maybe that's a solution, but... Okay. So what would be an example of an investment trust that you recently added or increased your holding in? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's... I mean, with my fund, it's not a high turnover Mm. fund. Um, It tends to be um, sort of tweaking things at the margin. Mm. Um, And what I've been trying to do really since we had... A very poor market conditions in the fourth quarter last year. So 2018 and the run-up to Christmas was a pretty poor period for global markets. And it, it threw up quite a lot of value, um, particularly in the UK market. Now, you'll know that there's been quite a, a divergence in ratings mm-hmm. in the UK market between companies that, you know, producing pretty good and 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 sustainable um, growth um, looks looks to be built in baked into the, the their profiles going forward over many many years um, particularly those that have benefited from the translation of sterling's weakness since the referendum um, and that's meant that that UK Domestic facing businesses, um, you know, have been derated at a time when those international businesses have been re-rated and that the, the, the gap in valuations is, is, is very large. And some people describe this as the gap, the difference between growth and value. I'm, mean, it's, it's, it's not as simple as, as that. Um, you know, you can have good value in growth companies and you could have, um, you can have growth in, 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 in value companies. So, um, but, but the fundamental valuations of, of some of those trusts that are UK invested, where no one's really been interested uh, in investing in the UK since 2016, you've seen outflows from open-ended funds constantly over that period. Um, but, but, and, and, and consequently, the discounts of some of these trusts have, have widened out. And that's the sort of fundamental value that starts to attract me. Um, so I've been adding to, you know, names like Aberforth Smaller Companies Trust, which is, you know, small cap, domestic orientation, uh, relatively more domestic compared to the FTSE 100, uh, Keystone Investment Trust, Edinburgh Investment Trust, another fund manager that's been in the spotlight recently. But, you know, I think value will out in those situations. I can't tell you what the outcome of uh, next month's election or Brexit is going mm-hmm. to be. But, you know, I can I, I can feel that there's value there. And I think on a three to five year view, that will pay some dividends. 
Okay. Um, um, what are your reasons for selling an investment trust and what would be an example of one you sold in relatively recently? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, that I, I, I try to uh, have a core of investments that I'd like to think I can own for the very long term. Mm. Uh, and certainly there are uh, investment trusts in there that have been there since the start uh, back in 2001. Um that premium rating thing is is something that 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 I, I feel um, is is probably the key driver. Um, so Bailey Gifford as a house have been incredibly successful, as you know, uh, with their, their 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 growth orientation of their portfolios and produced spectacular returns. I've enjoyed some good returns from the likes of Monk's Investment Trust. Um, and their Japanese funds. One of their Japanese funds, um, you know, at one stage got to a premium of twelve percent, and uh, I had the opportunity to, to recycle that into a similar fund, um, probably not with the same pedigree uh, and the same respect, but uh, on a similar discount to NAV. So twelve percent premium to a twelve percent discount. And although the two portfolios have you know moved all over the place since then, you know as things stand, my my return is 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 somewhat better, uh, despite being in a fund that some people might uh, might construe as being of, of lesser quality. Which so, fund is that? Uh, at Atlantis Japan, which is one of those small funds mm. which um, has been trying to address its discount and has been struggling with that. So whether it's one of the funds that 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 falls into that category of being subscale um uh, and you know uh subject to some sort of change of direction i don't know but uh, it, again it's possible okay thank you peter some really good tips on how to assess investment trusts and manage a portfolio of funds also see today's issue of Investors Chronicle or the website for more profiles of investment trusts Unicorn Master Trust holds in our professional picks feature. Professional investors, fund managers, had been concerned about the prospects for the investment environment and a number of them feared a recession. But more recently, some of these concerns seem to have diminished. Dave, you've been looking at this why had fund managers been concerned and why do their fears now seem to be allayed? Hi, Leonora. It's been an interesting year. Markets have done very well. But um, as you mentioned, fund managers and investors in general have been very worried, been concerned about a global economic slowdown. There's been the US-China trade war sort of hanging over everyone's heads. But now... Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, does a uh, monthly survey of global fund managers. And uh, the November survey has uh, suggested that um, fund managers are feeling much more optimistic. That may be related to the trade war um, appearing to thaw slightly. But also, generally, they just seem to be much less concerned about the prospect of a recession, about um, corporate earnings not doing very well. They seem to believe the outlook looks much brighter than it did. Okay, and um, how has this change in sentiment affected their asset allocations? There have been some really big shifts. For example, the average manager was holding something like 5% in cash, which I guess is always your cautious defensive allocation. Um, That has now come down to an average of 4.2%, which is a relatively big move. 
Also, you've seen managers move um, more aggressively into equities. Um, what's interesting, I suppose, there is if you examine what they're doing. For example, Peter mentioned the whole growth value debate. Growth has performed very well over the last decade or so. You've started to see managers shift back into value stocks. So, for example, banks, which rely on things like inflation, interest rates rising, economies performing well. On the other side of that, you've seen people also move a bit away from their more defensive assets. So they've moved out of bonds slightly. They've also moved out of some more defensive equities, such as utilities. Okay. And I mean, how pronounced has the shift into value been? I mean, are people all over all value? Have they given up on, you know, everything they were previously allocated to? I think as they often do when they believe the value is going to make a comeback, rather than making a wholesale Mm. shift into it, they are, I mean, these are quite big moves, but they're still, um, I suppose, kind of gradually moving in. So um, managers are still maintaining some big weightings to some of those leading sectors like technology, for example, and versus that, they still seem to be very underweight areas such as uh, materials, which are kind of classic value areas. So I, I think you're just seeing that gap sort of close a little bit and they're kind of moving more into value and just easing off a little bit on what has been a very large sort of crowding, very large position in those sort of growth names. They seem will to be a bit less worried, but um, about let's say certain things, recession maybe. Uh, but is there anything else that we're still concerned about? I, yeah, I think there are still some of those classic uh, concerns lingering around. Um, so this uh, this fund manager survey normally asks people to kind of cite what they think are the biggest risks in the next year or so, and um, I mean people seem less concerned than they were, but there are still big things hanging around in the background. So the trade war, as we discussed, you know, that may be thawing, but it's still going to go on in some form. People have still got that in their minds. Um, You've also got concerns about the bond market, whether we're in a bond market bubble. And obviously this year, bonds have done incredibly well in performance terms. And then just a few other issues, like, for example, whether central banks have essentially run out of levers to pull in terms of sort of helping the economy when things, uh, things start to go bad. Okay. Peter, um, are you more optimistic on the market and economic outlook and have you shifted your allocation anyway because of it? I, I, I think it's, it's difficult to, to be um, hugely enthusiastic about markets as things stand. Um, as David suggests, you know, there are plenty of uh, potential headwinds out there, potential risks out there. But, you know, I, I think particularly for the UK market where, you know, I have been pushing my weighting back up uh, again, um, you know, I think there is definitely some some uh, encouraging sounds there. I'm, you know, again, you know, you're, we're seeing a number of companies in in certain sectors having to cut their dividends. So, you know, that's not a particularly healthy sign. But elsewhere, I think, you know, we shouldn't be too pessimistic. So uh, I, I suppose we, we would expect you know, reasonable returns uh, looking into 2020. Okay. And, um, I mean, a lot of these, uh, uh, I suppose, investors Dave was talking about, um, they seem to be shifting to value investments. I mean, is that a good idea? Because obviously they 
could do well. They are probably quite risky as well. Um, we've had a number of false dawns in, in in terms of this this particular switch, and um, uh, only time will tell if this is the the beginning of a, a larger trend. But you know, certainly when you look at the fundamental valuations, you you have to say, well, you know, the piece of elastic between those two styles of investment has been stretched and stretched and stretched, and you know, it might start to ease back a little from here. Okay, thank you, Peter. And see Dave's full report on how asset allocations are shifting due to greater optimism in this week's Funds News. That brings us to the end of today's show, but have a look at this week's Investors Chronicle or the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk for our special investment trust articles, which include professional investor suggestions, how to get exposure to various geographies via eight investment trusts selected on the basis of value momentum and how to diversify your income by going global. Also, don't forget to enter our competition to win £5,000 to put into an investment trust of your choice. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 